0: Your support of the Candid Frame over the past 12 years has been invaluable to us. You have not only helped us produce over 400 episodes, but your donations directly helped us to create the Candid Frame app and making it available for free. We are now proud to announce the release of a new way for you to listen to TCF. We have released a new skill that is compatible with Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, Using voice commands, you can listen to the latest episodes, jump forward and back, and if you stop listening partway through an episode, it will remember where you left off. And like the Candid Frame app, it's free for users in the U.S. and Canada. In the coming months, the skill will be available in other countries, and I'll let you know when those become available. You can help and continue to support the work that we do here by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. You not only help us to meet our cost of production, but provide us the means to improve the quality of the show and do so much more. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. This is Yvonne X, and this is The Candid Frame. Beyond my interest in street photography, I've also had a long fascination with documentary photography. An extension of photojournalism, documentary work has allowed photographers to develop stories over time using multiple images. It used to be that magazines and newspapers would showcase such work, but with the changes in the industry, there's less space for such work on the printed page. Great work is still being produced, and it's finding its way online but for the photographers producing the work, it has become harder and harder to earn a living. Some like Matt Rose have found an outlet for documentary style work by working with nonprofits, and it was through our mutual interest in this area that provided an opportunity for us to meet at the Momento Photographic Workshop. Matt's journey to becoming a photographer is an interesting one, as he's worn many hats, including that of a bartender, a corporate suit educator, and United States Marine. But along with his interest in storytelling, he's also found space to produce an amazing series of images on hummingbirds that he has just as much of a passion for. He's a wonderful educator, and I learned so much from him during our short time together. And I especially enjoyed sitting down and learning more about his life as a photographer.
1: Well, Matt, welcome to the Candy Frame. It's a pleasure, pleasure to have you. Thank you, thank you. Pleasure's mine. I appreciate uh, the invite. This is this is really neat. <laughs>
0: yeah, I really enjoyed meeting you during the Momento workshop, and uh, and I told you back then I, I, I really appreciated uh, how you guys, you and Kosama uh, did such a splendid job. Oh, uh, wow.
1: you know, Facilitating
0: you. that whole thing.
1: Thank you, thank you. That was um, that was uh, Momento's first one for the year, and it was their first. If I if I remember correctly, it was the first of their ten year anniversary. So. Mm-hmm it was a bit of a, I don't want to say it was a high wire act because that makes it sound like we didn't plan accordingly, but it was definitely like Cosima and I made sure that everything was buttoned up and ready to go. And we had backup plans for our backup plans just because like, you know, we had done these workshops before. So we felt confident in what we were doing and knowing like what potential problems could occur. We had mm-hmm. backups ready to go for things like that. So yeah, it just, I was, I was very, very pleased with how everything went. And, and, you know, I just, I love, I love workshops. Yeah. I love, just ah, it's just such a great environment to be in but i was as we were saying right before we
0: started recording we didn't have much of an opportunity to really get to know each other so i I kind yeah. of you know i'm glad that we're gonna have the chance to sit down and talk yeah. um I, i'm kind of e- e- curious to hear about your beginnings though because when i saw that you you're a former marine i was like okay I gotta, yeah I, <laughs> I gotta hear about that <laughs> tell me about your upbringing and what led you to, to to sign up for the marines
1: my upbringing was a little tumultuous I was on my own at a fairly young age. Um, I had two older sisters. I ended up living with one of them for a while. And my mother and father, you know, they had their own set of adult problems. That As a kid, you just kind of have to figure out your way through these things. And, um, you know, I was... I was high school was just one of those places that I was in all the advanced courses and I loved learning, but I could give a damn about my grades. I didn't do the homework. I was too busy working. I had a, you know full time job at at a local grocery store. Winn Dixie. For anybody that's uh, from the south, I don't know. It was all my friends were applying to college, and I was I don't know. I think I was a junior, and all my friends were applying to college, and I had no designs on going to college at that point. Like it wasn't even something that I could even try to plan for or think about, you know, my, my parental situation was starting to get a little bit better under control. My, my mother was, uh, out of her, uh, rehab situation. So we were living together and, you know, working to pay the bills and all that fun stuff. And, you know, I just, it was one of those moments where I kind of had a bit of a watershed moment. It's Like w- if I can't go to college, what can I do? Do mm. I just want to keep working at Winn-Dixie? like what, not that there's anything wrong with that, but like, I feel like there's something more that I could do with my life. And I chose the Marine Corps largely because, I mean, they're the best. Like that's, <laughs> I thought like, how do I align myself with something that can never be taken away from me? And that's, you know, once you're a Marine, always a Marine. Once mm-hmm. you go through boot camp, you know, no matter what happens, you're always a Marine. And there's sort of this instant built in, uh, respect and, and sort of gravitas with being a United States Marine. And on top of all of that, it's just the education that you get in boot camp, the mental fortitude that it gave me was the key thing. Like if I could do that, then there's nothing I couldn't accomplish. And that's kind of the mindset that I had around it. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I took off, I just feel like it was like a Tuesday and I went to um to MEPS. I was in Orlando and MEPS is like military enlisted personnel processing center or something along those lines. It's it's been a long time. I don't remember the exact acronyms for it, but I just went and then I came back on a Thursday and they were, all my friends were like, Where would you go? I said, I just went and enlisted in the Marine Corps and they're like, What do you mean? You just went and enlisted in the Marine Corps. <laughs> I was like, Well, that's I went and I on the delayed entry program and uh I graduated high school in ninety six. I was 17. Um, and I had to do like one class before I could leave for boot camp because I was like just one class shy of graduating. Mm -hmm. And I ended up graduating with like a 1.7 GPA. I think my senior year, I I missed like 90 days or something like that for most of my class. It was, it was pretty ridiculous, but all my professors or teachers knew me and they knew the situation that I had. And they knew that if I was missing school, I was probably because I worked the night before most of the Mm -hmm. time I You know that was a part of it, but you know I I I slid by and I slid through, and and it wasn't until uh, my thirties when I went to college that I really sort of thrived in this academic environment. And now I'm like, you know, three points. I I don't. I think I've only gotten like two C's in classes since Mm -hmm. I started my college career. And a lot of it's just I I love the subjects that I'm studying. And in high school, math was not my thing. I hated math. I was really great with English. Uh, and most other thing I did really well in physics. I think I, I won a couple of competitions, local competitions for like physics Olympics sort of things, you know, where you build like toothpick bridges (laughs) and all those fun things. I was really good with that stuff. So yeah, that's how I ended up in the Marine Corps. And, uh, it was, I went in straight reserves. Uh, I spent a little extra time on active duty, uh, with my MOS schooling, which was in Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. My MOS was thirty four thirty three, which is just an LVS operator, which is like these huge 20 some odd ton trucks. And they have like a, an attachment on the back that lets you switch out with other uh, attachments. So there's like five different pieces that go with it. And you have to get licensed on all of those. So I was hazmat certified and, you know, with ammunition and refueling and all that fun stuff. We even towed like M1 Abram tanks on the back of these big long trailers. But the trucks were huge and you had to be so precise in driving them because you only had like five or six inches on either side of the road Mm -hmm. before you veered off into the other lane. So like it was precision and the tires were, I'm six foot three, the tires came up to about my shoulders. Like this was a very large rig of a vehicle.
0: You know, with education, it's, it's, it's made to be like cookie cutter. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's only one method in terms of being able to teach people. And mm-hmm. not everyone really sort of benefits from that structure. There's some people that really thrive in it. And there are other people for whom it really just doesn't work. And it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting to hear you say that within the, within the confines of the traditional school culture, you really, part of it had to do with, you know, what was happening with you at home. But I think there was something also about the institution itself that really yeah. didn't serve you, but that somehow learning, which you did when you were in the Marines, was a completely different process for you. But it uh, really allowed you to, 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 to thrive.
1: Yeah, it did. It very much did. It it gave me just you know, when you when you when you're a kid and you grow up poor and you know that you're getting the free lunches, and everybody knows that like that is mm-hmm. such a that is such a thing, and it's nobody's fault like it's nobody's fault, but it's one of those things that will completely make a child feel like they're completely less than right. so the Marine Corps sort of gave me this thing of you know i no matter what like no matter what this is this is an integral building block of who I'm going to be as I get older, and if this is the foundation, then the whole sky is the limit like there's nothing. There's nothing that I can't do and I've really kind of become that over the you know I'm I'm turning 40 in a few months as I said before and and you know I did that when I was 17 so I've got years that I've just been been that type of person where it's where I see something and I just do it because um, because come hell or high water I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to make it happen and that's partially how I ended up going to college and and you know um i might be getting a little ahead of myself but yeah like i quit i was corporate america and it was 26 or so and it was just another one of those times where i had a bit of a watershed moment it's like Okay, let's stop for a second and look at what the possible forecast of my life is gonna be. And here I am doing really great in corporate America and making more money than I should for somebody without a college degree. And and I'm enjoying the work. I'm working 70 hours a week. I'm on call. This is pre-iPhone. I had like a BlackBerry trio when mm-hmm. it first started. Not- and you know, I was doing project management and business analytics. So I'm like working out of airport sometimes on a laptop with, you know, a Wi-Fi key fob thing. And just kind of had a watershed moment of like, is is this what I want to do? Is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? And if so, then I need to get serious about this because I've gone about as far as I can with the company without really specializing in a specific arena. You know, I was I was support for a marketing department, but before that, I was in the customer service side of things doing like instructional design and web-based communications and I kind of just worked my way up from being that person that you get on the other side of the phone when you call your credit card company mm-hmm. and I just sort of had this affinity of being able to learn information really really quickly and then distill it into bite-sized pieces of information. So utilizing like inverted pyramid style of writing, which we kind of do now in a Twitter world, a post Twitter world. But before then, this was somewhat revolutionary as far as in communications within a corporate environment. But I just had a moment where I was like, do I want to keep doing this? And I realized that I didn't. You know, that as much as I enjoyed this, there wasn't any sort of deep fulfilling sort of thing. And I remember at one point someone had said, the best way to figure out what you want to do with your life is to think about if you didn't have to worry about paying your bills, if you didn't have to worry about keeping a roof over your head, if you didn't have to worry about any of that, what would you do? And I've always loved photography. My my grandmother, when I was a kid, and I would go visit her when I was like six or seven, I had like a Kodak 110 camera that had the film canister that looked like an old phone headset. Yeah, yeah. Like I would go visit her in the summers and we would go take pictures and then we would go develop them that day. At like the the one hour processing mat, and this is in the middle of Ohio in like Dayton area, and she would always be like, "You're such a good photographer, you're so great, and she was just so encouraging with it, which I never really had that and even after that, it took a while. but then, when I was in high school, um my yearbook professor, who was also my church youth group leader and also my physics professor, he really kind of taught me the brass the brass tacks of what photography is like he taught me how to work in a dark room. Um, I was the darkroom manager in high school. You know, he he saw someone who was in a in a not ideal situation and was smart enough to get into trouble if left to their own devices, mm. and and he really kind of stepped in. He was very much this sort of just positive role model in my life, and it was very much related to photography and design. I learned a lot about layouts. I learned a lot about just time management and. You know, when you're when you're somebody that just needs a little bit of support and that person steps in and overprovides provides that support and really gives you just so many different tools to work with, like those things still stick with me. You know, I, I learned early on about just design and sort of like Gestalt theory and, and general aesthetics. And I didn't learn it in a Florida art school, you know, because that's the arts programs, unfortunately, are usually the first things to go. But in Florida, I didn't take any art courses. And it was all through yearbook. It was all through late nights, me and him working on designs and layouts for the yearbook and, you know, making sure that the photos are developed and printed and sized. And I, it was like a crash course in production. And it was, it was really just, I took to it, you know, it was such a deep seated thing. And it could have been something else. Like if it was a different professor or a different person, it might've been sports that I ended up getting into or, you know what I mean? But he was at the right time where like that, that emotional intelligence level I was just at to really feed on that sort of, of, I don't know, that, that sort of just push in that direction. Right. So
0: what was the allure of photojournalism as you, as your preferred genre of photography?
1: So uh, when I thought about, you know, what I wanted to do and what would be worthwhile in life is is I kind of got tired of making money for the company which that was my job, but there wasn't any sort of like fulfilling aspect of that. And I started thinking like, what is it that I'm leaving behind? Like what if I were to die tomorrow, like what is the impact that I'm leaving behind? Like if I left things around me for the better, or or are they just, or am I just like another cog in the wheel, just kind of producing the same sort of stuff that everybody else is. And I left my, I left and I moved to San Diego and I'm like, I'm going to go start my own photo business. I'm going to just go and I'm going to start taking photos and I'm just going to figure it out. Like with what little information I had. And, and well, let me back up. I did take one, uh, undergrad, uh, community College photo course, uh, just to kind of like reacquaint myself with the dark room because it'd been a little while, so I moved to San Diego and I just started and the the thing with photojournalism was you know I thought that just the images I saw carried such emotional impact and i know what I know what photography meant to me at that point with the limited exposure that I had that there was a way that I could make my voice be a voice for good, and that was kind of how I was able to go about doing so and I completely sort of fumbled my way into it. Um, I had a client, and I was photographing him. And then we—I uh, was heading home, and I saw uh, an uh, F-18 fighter jet crash into a neighborhood on um, right near uh, Miramar um, Corps Air Base. And had all my equipment with me, so you know, being the jump in and just do it type of person that I am, I just drove over there and ended up taking photos. And I got there before the news crews did. I got there before the police did. So I had photos that weren't able to get done. And I ended up selling it to the AP and that kind of pushed me in that direction. I realized like the impact of that. And like once I was kind of like bitten by that bug, so to speak, because it's like, here's this image that is now being produced worldwide and it's communicating information. And I thought that was such a a really, I don't know, just the power and the sort of impact that comes from that. And, and, you know, we all import our own meaning to the imagery that we see, but if you're able to really present it in the right sort of manner that everybody is able to get the same sort of thing from it, like that's Mm -hmm. truly powerful, you know, that's, and I just thought like, here I am just this person from Sanford, Florida, (laughs) who for all intents and purposes, barely made it out of high school. Yet here I am doing things and that was such a really great, fulfilling experience. And, you know, each, each experience I've had with photojournalism has always sort of had that emotional return on me, like a return on investment. And it helps me with the decisions that I want to make and who I want to work with and, and the type of stories I want to do, because I want to make sure that if I'm in it, if I'm like emotionally invested, then I know that like this is the right thing for me to be doing you know you just mentioned that spot news event with the with the plane
0: crashing but it seems you, you gravitate a lot to storytelling the, the whole idea of of narrative and being able to you know do more than just provide a, a single photograph can you tell me the story of of one of your early story projects that you felt like that really crystallized what you were hoping to do as a photographer
1: yeah um i would say my sophomore year uh, I was working at Apple. Uh, I was going to the Corcoran College of Art and Design, which now is Corcoran School of Art at George Washington University. Uh, this is before that merger happened. And um, I was working at Apple, um, and I was working with this person named Jonathan. He went by Dickie Hearts, which was his screen name. And he is a deaf American, and he's he's from Guyana, I believe, And he was just this, this really flamboyantly fun, awesome person to work at Apple with. And we, I knew a little bit of sign language and we immediately became friends because I knew that he was deaf and I just would sign something to him like smart ass. And he's like, wait a second, you know (laughs) sign language and you know how to say like that, we're going to be friends. And we just sort of Became friendly and the more I learned about him that he's this he's a screenwriter he's an actor he does performance art and he just wears like the most outlandish things. so like he would show up to work at Apple in his Apple shirt but his pants would be like zebra leggings with turquoise boots. <laughs> and he would wear like red heart sunglasses that had the sun like the glasses part taken out so they were just frames and he was just <laughs> this person that you saw and you're like that guy is not only living his best life but he's living it on his terms and yeah. how awesome is that like how awesome is it that here's this person who has this disability what we call a disability he never considered being deaf a disability he's like this isn't i he, he did eventually have hearing aids, but he preferred to not have them. And that was kind of part of, that was kind of part of his whole story is how he kind of just approaches life in general. He's like, this isn't something that I consider to be a detractor. So when in my sophomore class, it was time for us to pick a story and to work on a story. And I was working full time and going to school with six credits. So it didn't leave a lot of time for me to just walk around DC and try and find a story. So you work with what's next to you. You work with what you can access on a daily basis and make those connections through. And I asked him if I could do a story on him because I just thought it was so cool that here's this person who is just living life his way. He's working at Apple, but he's also an actor and he's also a performance artist and he does screenwriting and all these things. And that was the first story that I shot. And we're still friends. I, he's actually living here in L.A. and his, he just wrote and directed a short and it got picked up and now I feel like he's in New York scouting for talent for, like he got greenlit to do something. So like, here's somebody that I met in 2009 or, two th- yeah, 2009, 2010, and here we are eight years later and his story is still going and still successful. And yeah, like just, I don't know if I'm answering your question because I feel like I might have brought you no, no you're, a little you're bit. Here. Um, but yeah, like that. Just the power of that. Like the the we made friends, and I remember the reception that I got from posting his images. Um, because we hung them for critique in um in the Corcoran, and we didn't really have like a a gallery space for us at that point because we were undergrads. So we had this area that was called White Walls, which was like the big white hallway that everybody walked through to go to their studio classes. So it was kind of a showcase area and we would have shows there and I remember I had hung up my show my images and there were 13 and I had hung them in this sort of diamond grid because I remembered from high school what, the, what my yearbook teacher had taught me about, you know, when you're hanging information or when you're, you're laying information out on a page, you want to make sure that when the person enters the page, they don't leave. Right mm, there's there's yeah. no so it's so you want everybody you you don't if you if you have an image on the far right side of the page you don't want it looking off the page you want it looking back in so I had laid out this diamond grid of thirteen images and I wasn't even there for the critique because I had just started working with a nonprofit called the Young Invincibles and they had flown me out to one of their locations so I tried to Skype in for the crit but Louis Palou who, you know, is this fantastic, phenomenal photographer, photojournalist. He had made a comment about how I had hung it and about the work. And so I was having to get all this information secondhand. And I was so mad (laughs) because I wasn't there. (laughs) I'm like, Louis Blue, this this amazing photojournalist that I look up to, and like his work is so incredible, was talking about my, my first attempt at photojournalism and like in a serious sort of sense. You know, I'd shot Weddings beforehand, and there's certainly a documentary quality to that, but this was me constructing a narrative and really sort of putting together you know the wide, the medium, the tight the elements of who this person is and, and really trying to present like why you should give a shit about what i'm showing you. yeah you know and it was it was a really great it was a really great situation I'm still friends with him it's great
0: you know you were talking earlier in in your corporate career about you know sort of being carried. In, in sort of a, a path just, just because of the natural flow of corporate life where you just like you get your you get your promotions, you get your your raises, and you just sort of carry carry through. Yeah. And then you just kind of took a step back and said, Hey, you know, this this is not for me. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel you're negotiating your career as a photojournalist, as a documentary photographer, differently than when you were in the corporate world?
1: Oh, oh well, let's see. There's a lot of differences, largely the fact that I get to make up my own time and my own schedule. But at the same time, I'm only really accountable to me in that sort of sense, right? Because I'm the one setting my goals. And unless I'm working with a client specifically, I'm the one that has to grow my own business. I have to find my own clients. I have to find my own work. Where in the corporate environment, it's here's all these things going on. We need you to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So aside from that aspect, I, I don't know. Working in corporate America, you have to do... You have to do what you have to do as far as like your boss is concerned. And it was it was really important for me to be able to kind of pick and choose who I wanted to work with. That's kind of the key for me is like work with, not work for. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think in the arts in general, you have the opportunity to be really, really collaborative with something. And even if I'm just a photographer and you're the subject, this is still a collaboration as far as I'm concerned. Like this is, we're putting this together to create this story, but it still requires this, just this base level of trust. And in corporate America, you could not, you know, you could give a shit if you trust the person next to you. You just have to get the job done. Right. As far as how I'm negotiating in, in, in since then, well, it's, I, <sighs> Went to the Corcoran. I had a really, really specific, specific idea of what success was and what it was supposed to be and what it was supposed to be for me, and that ended up being ultimately really limiting in a lot of ways because I'm the type of person that you know, like I said before, I don't remember if we were we were recording it or not, but I, you know, I said that I set my mind on a goal. Like I'm going to go do that, and I go do it, and I am relentless in my pursuit of it. I'm like a freight train. I just go, and there's no stopping unfortunately, sometimes you're supposed to stop. And you're supposed to go, wait a minute, should I keep going in this direction? Because here's this obstacle. And I just barreled through it and kept going. And it's like, well, maybe that obstacle, if I had stopped, would have given me a little bit more insight and wisdom in maybe going a different direction because that obstacle is there for a reason. Maybe I mm-hmm. shouldn't be going that way anymore. So I think that I had had this idea of like, I'm going to be, I wanted to be a conflict photographer. I was in the Marine Corps. Like I had, I was going to go do this. And that was all there was to it. It was just going to be this. And I think that that ended up blinding me in a lot of ways to other potential things that I'm just now sort of discovering. And I'm grateful, you know, for that to an extent, but at the same time, I still look back and kind of go, Dumbass, you should have just did X instead of Y. <laughs> and maybe you'd be in a different place right now instead of trying to play catch-up around it. So as far as negotiating it, I think it's just, it's that. It's, it's, it's moving in directions and, and really kind of understanding what my idea of success is. And, and you've you heard me say it when I started the workshop, everybody's blueprint for success is completely different. And they're all valid. But your pathway to success is going to be different than my pathway to success, because success for you is different than success for me. I have a spouse. We have a lot of time available that we can spend together because we're both in the realm of academia. And that's really important to me. So my idea of success is I have Fridays where I can kind of do whatever I want because my spouse is off and we go do things because he's not teaching. And that means we kind of always have three-day weekends, or we have summers off, or you know, it's, it's a matter of like your priorities in life and and goals of happiness shifting and being mm-hmm. able to really indulge in those and take advantage of those. And that's, That's, I think, the biggest thing for me versus what I had in corporate America was, yeah, the money was real cute, and I was making a lot of coin, but I was working 70 hours a week, and I was single at the time, so that was fine. I lived, I could literally see from my apartment window, I could see my office window on the other side of town. This was in Wilmington, Delaware, which is like the size of five blocks, so it wasn't like that big of a stretch, but I could see my office, and when I was in my office, I could see my apartment, so it was really just, I lived and worked. It was just that, and now... I live in work, but it's a whole different sort of experience. It's it's because I'm a photographer and a photojournalist and artist, I'm always quote unquote working because I'm always analyzing, I'm always looking at things, I'm always thinking about how this television show that I'm watching plays into the larger, you know, cultural conversation about photography or about news. You know, I'm a news junkie, like so much so that I had to quit Twitter years ago because I was on Twitter just nonstop because it was I was following great journalists. I was reading, but I had to temper that Hmm. because it was becoming so I really kind of turned myself over to this notion of this is the industry that I'm going to be part of. So I need to know everything that I can about it so I can be a subject matter expert and really get in there and do the type of things that I want to do. And it never sort of, it just never, it never happened the way that I intended it to happen. Yeah. And a lot of that was because I had had my own expectations that weren't managed correctly, uh, as far as myself self-management of them. You know, I, I thought, oh, I'll just go and I'll get a job at a paper and this, that, and the other. And it's like, well, that's not as easy as you think it is. And the newspaper industry shrunk. And these are things that I didn't know right from the get-go and only started learning like as i was in college so it was as i was going through undergrad it was like oh okay so this landscape that i thought that i was going to be entering is really bleak right now (laughs) and i'm not nearly as talented as half of these people that are applying for these jobs so what's the realistic thing that's going to happen here i'm going to move back to california and i'm going to struggle trying to find work so what does that, what does that look like? What am I going to do? And it it took a while, but you know, it's, it's, it's mostly just believing that, that you're going to be able to do it. And that's, I think the biggest difference from corporate America now is I answer to myself and I have to believe that I can do something. Well,
0: let's talk about that belief in, 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 in the fact that you can do it. Because, mm-hmm. as you said, the landscape of photojournalism, newspapers, magazines, has, has been changing over the last 25, 30 years, and it seems to be only accelerating. So, you know, the idea of going into photojournalism now, even as a young person, is a daunting one, but, you know, when you're older, it's, that's a whole new, you know, cuddle worms that you're throwing in okay. there. And it can be, And you know, I I can imagine that people start thinking about security not so much you right. yourself but other people start thinking about you know maybe you should do something a little safer maybe you should consider using doing something else and you know as you just mentioned you you've been married i don't know how long you've been married now but uh, uh two years two years okay yeah. so now you have someone else who you're sort of mm-hmm. responsible for and how how does that color what you want you know the goal that you want to have balanced off with the fact that, well, you have to be a little bit responsible, that you may not be able to afford the kinds of risks that you could when you were 20 years old? Mm -hmm. Tell Mm -hmm. me about that.
1: You know, when when you're in your 20s and just biologically, you assess risk differently, right? When you're a teenager, speeding isn't that big of a deal because you're not understanding the risks associated with that, right? The risk reward is a totally different situation. So as you get older, that narrows and i'm less you're less likely to take risks because the reward really needs to be something that pays off for the risk that's being taken when you're younger it it's it's almost like a 50-50 right so As you get older, yeah, you certainly just like you said, you have to think about, you know, the people that you have in your life and the people that are around you. And that was a big thing for me. I remember having sort of this moment of, okay, here I am with this person. If I go out and do something stupid, what is the impact going to be on them? What are they going to be left with? You know, if I go on a shoot and I get, you know, if it's a protest or something and I catch a bottle to the temple and I'm brain dead, and is this person going to take care of me? And what is that being done? You know, like, what am I perpetrating upon this person who I've chosen to spend my life with? And there's a responsibility at play there. And I think when you're younger, you're less set in your ways. And I think you're more, um, you're more amenable to, not getting the feedback that you think you should be getting mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know when i was when i was young and in corporate america i didn't care that this person is yelling at me and telling me that i'm doing 19 things wrong because i know that i'm just going to come back to work tomorrow and do this 19 things right the next day where now you know you take it a little bit differently because you have years of just years of experience in in dealing with people and, and with working with things and it changes. So. When it, I don't know, I think because of the fact that I had so much debt working uh, from college because it's expensive, working at a newspaper full time making $30,000 a year or less just wasn't feasible (laughs) because I had to put a roof over my head Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I'm sharing a living space with somebody and we, you know, I have to contribute to the household. And if I'm gone 60 hours a week making $30,000 a year doing this thing that I really want to do and I really, really love, then what's the work-life balance? What's the trade-off there? And I started, I think that's where I really kind of started thinking more about how is it that I can make the maximum amount of money and do the thing that I love to do, but still have the maximum amount of time available to spend with the person that I want to be with? Because realistically in life overall, it's a finite amount of time. And even, even as you get older, your quality of life will degrade just because that's just how nature works. That's how life works. You get older, your knees hurt, your elbows hurt. It's hard to go up and down stairs. You're not going to be able to travel the world. And, you know, I wanted to really kind of just be able to enjoy it while I have it, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And working in photography has really allowed me to do that. You know, I, I, I've had to learn Kind of quickly, and this was a lesson from Louis Palou, uh, a Northern short course years ago, was you have to diversify your income streams. And as soon as he said that, I was like, "Duh!" Like that absolutely makes sense. How is it that that is not like part and parcel of your undergrad education for working as a photographer? So how are you? you know? How are
0: you doing that today?
1: I have uh, a couple of different streams of income. It's um, you know I have one client that's roughly about forty percent of my income, and they're really great. They pay well. I make my own schedule it's, it's, you know, it's all product photography. So it's kind of just a, a, a cookie cutter sort of setup because the client wants things a specific way, but because I have various customer service skills, the clients that I'm working with on their behalf, I have great rapport with them. So, you know, I come in, I do the shoot and I leave and it's great. And I invoice them. And then I'm still open to work with nonprofits and which I'm not doing this year. Um, but you know, I, I have the ability to work with nonprofits and I teach, For Momenta, and then I also teach uh, as part of the MFA program at Cal State. uh, I teach um, there as well. So I have like just these different avenues for income to come in, but at the same time, they're all related to photography, even though each one activates like a certain area of photography for me, which works out really great because. I have a ton of interests and I I love teaching and I love teaching workshops, but teaching a 15 week college course that's intro to black and white photography is completely different than teaching a five day photojournalism workshop. And it's completely different than going and doing my, you know, product photography or the occasional random assignment for, you know, somebody needs headshots or this bank just hired a whole new set of executives and we need somebody to do corporates, uh, corporate headshots. Or my friend, you know, I have a friend who works in PR and Hillside work my way sometimes. Like, you know, can you do this step and repeat red carpet event tomorrow? It's like, yeah, that's no problem. So it all kind (sighs) of, When you're in your freelancing, and I think any freelancer can tell you this, it's always a, it's a feast or famine, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you want to make sure that when you're feasting, that you're stocking up enough so that when that famine happens and that peaks and valleys, when that valley comes, because you never know how long that valley is going to be, you want to make sure you're just ready for it. Yeah.
0: As I mentioned, I attended the Memento Photographic Workshop recently, and I can say that it was one of the best workshop experiences I've ever had. Not just because of what I learned, but because it provided me the opportunity to use my work to be of service to others. If you are looking for a way to do more with your photography and want to be of service to people in your community, I highly recommend you check it out. Momento, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary, has scheduled several workshops in the coming year. They include events in Charleston, South Carolina, Portland, Oregon, and recently Puerto Rico. Each student is assigned a different nonprofit, or you can choose to find your own. Together, you create a photo story that speaks to the mission of the organization. You'll also find nightly lectures and a full day of business skills training. Plus, this experience includes daily one-on-one editing sessions with an instructor to go over all your photos in a personal, focused feedback session. It can and will change the way you see your photography. Find out more by visiting MomentoWorkshops.com. When I was coming up, it was... They, there was a singular vision for becoming a photographer. You would have like a single career. You'd be like a wedding photographer, you would be a portrait photographer, you would be a, a photojournalist. There wasn't this need to be diversified because the idea was that you would get a, you would have a career and you would be able to be able to sustain it over decades because there were plenty of examples of people that were doing just that. But practically everybody I know currently who isn't who wasn't working as a staff photographer on a paper which is just few and far between Mm -hmm. are having to be very diverse in terms of their offerings. They're having to do video. They're having to do, you know, work for nonprofits. They're having to do any kinds of different aspects of a photography Um, and, you know, various facets of their business to be able to stay in the game. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's, much more difficult because you have to than it was in the past, just because you have to be putting on so many different hats. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you're, you know, when you're teaching, you know, the the young people coming up who are interested Mm -hmm. in doing this thing, you know, how do you sort of set the stage for them? Because I hear a lot of, oh, a lot of negativity about what's happening with newspapers and what's happening in journalism, especially from people who've been around for a while and are just saying, "Well, mm-hmm. it sucks. You're not getting paid." You know, all these bad. You know, and it's and but you know these young people really want to be able to do this, and they don't don't need you know some old fogey telling them it's not like it was back in the day. You know, you mm-hmm. should find something else to do, kid, because <laughs> it's, just, it's a, dying on the vine everywhere. So how do you sort? Of, How do you, how do you be encouraging, but also be realistic about their expectations? I
1: I think I'm just encouraging in my realistic approach to it. I tell them, you know, make sure you know what you're getting into. And I I explain to them, you have to think long and hard about what, what your idea of happiness is and why you're getting into this game. You know, when we talk about working on personal projects and, and we talk about, you know there are times when you're doing photography that you're just going to you're gonna be so mad and so frustrated with all the things that aren't related to actually having a camera in your hand and photographing and working with a subject and you have to have that sort of deep seated love and desire to carry you through through the times that aren't so super fun and, and fabulous and exciting about photography, like when you're having to do a whole bunch of invoices or you're having to read through all of your contracts and, and you have to hire a lawyer and all these other times where it's like, well, I just want to give all this up but then you have to kind of dig into that emotional reserve of like, why am I doing this? So I when I, I really try to make sure that, that the students know like it's really great and fine that you love photography, right? Like you love taking pictures and you love doing that, but, but that's not always going to be that way. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a very real understanding that sometimes you might have to be working a second job or working part time somewhere because it's, that's how you have your insurance or that's how, you know what I mean? Like that's how you make sure that you get your teeth cleaned because (laughs) otherwise you don't have dental, you know? Um, it's I don't know I I kind of just set it up for them like be aware of of why you're getting into this and be okay with walking away from it if it's if it's not what you want and be okay with the fact that maybe you'll walk right back to it you know like you you just have to be really in tune with who you are and what you want and research the the environment and what it is that you're getting into you know if you're wanting to go into news photography Take a look at that and look at like actually look at it and go okay how many newspapers are there in the United States how many staff photographers does each newspaper have so whatever that percentage is you need to be better or as good as that 0.000037% of the population of photographers that are going to be doing that and mm-hmm. those people are Those are those people that work on that are going to be some of the best that are out there. And you need to be able to make sure like you believe in yourself enough to go out there because it's like it's the real world. and You're going to get critiques and you're going to get editors that are just doing 9000 other things that are related to the business of putting out a paper and the responsibilities around that. And you can't go in there and cry because you didn't get a good edit. That's just life sometimes, and that sucks. And you got to take from it what was good and take from it what was bad and understand that they're not trying to be mean to you. Like, there's not an editor out there that is trying to be mean to the new kid coming up, <clears throat> right? They want to make sure that if you are coming up, that you have the metal to stay in this game and do this the way that it needs to be done. And you have to have that deep-seated love for doing it. And if you don't have that, you're going you're gonna to have a lot of speed bumps that aren't going to be enjoyable. yeah.
0: Tell me a little bit about the role in, in working with nonprofits and NGOs, because I think one of the appeals to me is the fact that I can use all these skills that I've learned for journalism mm-hmm. and, you know, the writing for the magazines and stuff, and I can apply them to something else. Um, yeah. tell, tell me about their importance to you. I know that this year you're not going to be doing that much of that work, but tell me about the, their role in not only in, in with respect to your business, but in terms of your creativity.
1: I don't know. To me, nonprofits are like the ultimate do-gooders, right? Like these are the people that that literally just they, they look around, they go, "Hey, here's this problem that nobody's doing anything about." Well, if nobody's doing anything about it, then maybe I could do something about it. And then that's their focus is is fixing the problem. Like the nonprofit's job is to be the nonprofit and to do whatever, you know, to save the dogs or to to make awareness over this issue. So a lot of the times, that's such a an, an all-encompassing thing that they don't think about media, they don't think about narrative, they don't think about how their website looks or, or how it is that maybe the donors will end up giving you more money if you have better visual collateral that's letting them know this is how their money's being used and it's gonna encourage them to tell their friends, like, hey, I donated X amount of dollars here, y'all should donate money here too because look at what they're doing. Like, my money made that happen. So there's this sort of like tangible return on the investment for the donor a lot of the times the nonprofits don't always think about that, right? Cuz they're so focused on doing what they're supposed to do and I love that about the nonprofits. I love that the nonprofits do what like just they do the good. And for me, photography and photojournalism specifically is the ability to really raise awareness around things and to do good in a different manner. So Putting those two things together to me is like chocolate and peanut butter, right? It's yeah. a great sensation. It's a great thing. And on top of it, there's that immediate sort of inv- like just that return, that immediate return. I, you know, working with a nonprofit sometimes they don't realize how great they look and how awesome it is, the things that they're doing. And when you photograph that and then go, this is what I did. And you show it to them, they're like, holy shit, that's what we're doing. That looks amazing. Like, I only know it from this side of things because I'm, I'm in the mix and I'm, but when you are offering that perspective outside of what they're in all the time, you know, it's just like in your own life, when you kind of have that opportunity to step outside of, the rigmarole of what you do, you kind of go like, oh yeah, right. I'm actually not doing too bad at life. It's that same sort of thing that happens for the nonprofits in that situation. They're like, wow, we're really killing it. Like we're doing great work. And it, it just sort of is just becomes this sort of like positive cycle of feedback in on itself. And it, it it pushes them forward even more. So creatively, like creatively, I just love, Partnering with nonprofits that are just doing good things, and and I try to choose the nonprofits that align with the things that I am aligned with. You know, could, it's, could you give me an
0: example of one that in which you felt like you had that you had a wonderful experience that they really be- and that they really benefited from the work that you produced?
1: I did. Uh, there's this organization called Hollywood Heart, and they're here. Um, they're based out of Pasadena. And what they do, uh, they do a lot of different events throughout the year, but their main event that I worked with and covered, cause I, I was, it was, a, um, teaching artists with them as well at a local high school here in LA, but they do this week long camp and it's this arts summer camp and it's up in Malibu, North of Malibu a little bit up in the mountains. And it's just this art summer camp that is for children who are under 18. I think there might've been a couple 19 year olds, but they're all under 18 um, ages 13 to 19 and they're all HIV positive and they all come from inner city schools. And a lot of these kids are like as a gay man growing up around that it's always, there's always such this stigma to it and the, there's so much education when you're an adult, but when you're a kid who is born HIV positive positive through no fault of your own, no actions that you took cause you to be this way. Like that's mm. not, that's not an easy thing to start up with. Like you have a gallon Ziploc baggie worth of meds that you have to take every day. Like I can't even wrap my head around what that does to a 13 year old, 14 year old kid. Yeah. And here's this arts camp that Hollywood heart puts on where all of these kids, you know, they I think it was roughly around a hundred. They're all surrounded by like people, right? Everybody there is just like them. So there's that immediate breakdown of having to explain or having to talk about or anything like that it's just the immediate acceptance of we're all the same in this space in this camp they have all kinds of of arts workshops it's photography it's acting it's dancing like everything so they asked me to document the entire week so i was living in the dorms with one of the um the groups of uh, uh, instructors, and I would get up at five thirty and start photographing throughout the entire day. And we're talking like twenty-hour days because there's wow. nighttime events and the whole nine yards. But I was living for all of it because there was so much going on. And when you're a photographer, like and you're up on this mountain, and you're the only f- person there shooting the whole thing, you really have to plan it out. Like, okay, so this class is happening at this time, and this class is happening at this time. So about halfway through that class, they're going to start doing the acting. Before that, they're just going to be sitting and reading. So I need to make sure that I'm there at 115, but I need to be on the other side of the camp at 122 mm-hmm. because that's when they're going to start doing this. So with this Hollywood Heart organization, you know, I, I documented the whole thing, and when I handed the images over to them, it was the executive director at the time, Maggie. She was just like, I didn't even see like ninety percent of these things that were going on. Like, w- I was there when you were taking that photo. I didn't even see you. Like, this is incredible. Like, they were just so happy with like <laughs> the hundred gigs worth of images I and mean, like <laughs> seven days straight. Um, you know, and 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 it was it was because of a lot of the things that I learned from Momenta that because they were a nonprofit, I was able to really sort of like, okay, so you have this, you have this, here's this fabrics course, right? This sewing, sewing class. And they're using, they're using fabrics that were given to them by, I want to say either like Creighton Barrel or Restoration Hardware. And it was like the leftover sample book textiles sort of a thing that they donated to the Hollywood Heart Organization. So there needed to be images of, the children using these things and using what the donor gave them so that they could then put that onto their social media platforms. And it kind of helped Crate and Barrel. I forget, I don't think it was Crate and Barrel. It might have been Restoration Hardware, but it helped them and the HR person when they were able to say like, oh, we donated to this organization and here's an image of the things that the students created and what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. But then there was like the extra caveat of because these are kids under the age of 18, some of them couldn't be photographed and some could. So I had to negotiate all of that, which was like an extra step of fun. But um, (laughs) it's, it's just like, it's that immediate, it's that immediate sort of response where they're just like, wow, like they're just, they were so thrilled with the potential things that they can now do with these images and what they could show their donors. Like mm-hmm. this is what it is. Like there's only so much you can explain to somebody, you know, when you're trying to get a donor, like here's all this art camp and think about how, how long it took me to explain everything to you right here. Right. When you just have like, here's five photos from what happened and how this works. It's that immediate, I could put myself in that situation. I can see what it looks like. I can see that if I donate money to this, this is how it's going to be used. So I, that was, I think, probably the most immediate sort of example. It was, it was just a really fantastic experience, and they were so happy, and I made friends at the same time. And you know, I was working on a, my own documentary, and I hired somebody who was a film editor through that organization. You know, it's it's it opens up to such a, a whole culturally. Um, like laterally, culturally, you can move through and find other people and other stories and other events and you can collaborate and work. And I feel like I'm rambling now. No no, I ra- no, no, no,
0: <laughs> no, no. I don't stop people from rambling. That's the heart of the show here. <laughs> no, but I, you know, I, I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's, you know, one of the most gra- uh, gratifying kinds of work that, that you can do because you get to see, People who really want to appreciate what you're doing, Mm -hmm. and then, and then you get to see the impact that it makes across the board to the people who are benefiting from the program, the people who are putting all their time and sweat into the program to help, whether it's kids, whether it's people with disabilities, or whatever, you know, whatever the service is,
1: uh, you're contributing by doing Mm -hmm. something that you love, and Mm -hmm.
0: you know, you can't beat that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to for me is I'm a very just gregarious, generous, altruistic sort of person, but I'm not the guy that, that is going to go stand on the, on the, on the, on the soup kitchen line and ladle out soup to people. Like, not that there's like, I love that people do that. I just know that I'm not the type of person to do that. So I, how, how do I, how do I do something as good as that mm-hmm. and as effective as that in my own way? And this was you know, nonprofit photography is just that it's so much like it's, it's almost hard to actually measure the impact of that type of thing because it just, it spreads so much and it spreads such goodwill in so many different ways that it's ultimately just incredibly fulfilling. You're absolutely right.
0: Well, uh, Matt, what's interesting about you is, is, is much as I I haven't known you very long, but my first impression of you was just the documentary work that you were doing. And then I find out this other side of you, which I don't think you were keeping secret, but it, was, <laughs> it wasn't obvious. But th- this thing with the with the hummingbirds, tell me tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so um, I have what... Well, so a, a group of hummingbirds is called a charm. And I have a, roughly about a 30 to 40 hummingbird charm kind of at all times outside of my balcony. So I live on the second story of a like one of those old California apartment buildings and uh, they're just on the balcony it's like a sort of like a corner unit sort of thing so my balcony has a sliding glass door from the living room and then one from the bedroom and it's just in this sort of like l-shaped situation and there's a big tree that grows right out on the in that little area there so I put out a bunch of plants one day cause you know, I wanted to try my hand at gardening and I noticed like one or two hummingbirds fly by. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. The little hummingbirds I've never really seen before. And they have this just amazing sort of presence about them because they, they almost defy gravity. Like they're, they defy physics to some extent. Like they create their own pocket of air that they move within. It's really quite something, but I saw them fly by. So I started just putting out a little hummingbird feeder and then they came to visit. Uh, and then I got a big hummingbird feeder that had like seven seats on it. And then I noticed one day that as I was taking pictures, there was like 14 or 15 of them there. And I thought, well, that's who wants to go to a restaurant where there's only like seven seats and there's 14 of you to go. (laughs) So I, uh, I picked up another feeder and then all of a sudden I had like almost 20 and I was like, damn it, if I keep adding, (laughs) then they're just gonna keep showing up. Let's do that. (laughs) Let's see how much I can get. So um, one, I feel like it was like a Christmas time. I had seen something on Amazon, like perky pet feeders, I believe is the name. They make this tube that is like four feet tall and, or four feet long, not tall, four feet long. And it has 44 ports on it so with those ports there wasn't a place to sit so every day there would just be this this like like cafeteria sort of setup of just birds just like a tube and everybody is eating on both sides of it and i always felt bad because it's like who wants to stand and eat all the time i don't like doing that and uh so my husband one day just made this sort of he laser cut this thing that goes over it that has spindle holes so then everybody started showing up and sitting, and like in the little, um, in the little uh, laser cutout that he had made, it said like Matt's Diner," and it was just <laughs> a cute little thing, so I thought, okay well i've got forty four ports and I 've got all these hummingbirds. What if I get another four foot long feeder and hang it underneath that <laughs> it sounds, this so, it sounds increasingly like an addiction it is a little bit um. But with the, with the the long tubes, because the tube was only like two inches in diameter, the way that the water was spaced out, it would – or not the water, but the, the hummingbird solution, it would go bad quickly. So it became difficult to clean. So I actually – Ended up getting rid of that. But because I had gotten so many hummingbirds, I now have uh, any, depending on the volume of hummingbirds between three and four of the large, I'd say about 32 ounce glass jars that hang with seven seats on them. So I have right now, I only have three out because um, they, a lot of birds will winter or overwinter where I am uh, just because the weather is always good for them. But right now we're kind of in, I'm in a low migratory sort of um, valley of them, if you will, they, uh, there's, I want to say, roughly about 20 to 30 right now, uh, but that'll increase because uh, they're all uh, adolescents and they're starting to mate. Um, so usually, uh, one hummingbird, uh, will have two eggs. And then those two birds, uh, once they're kind of raised, they're just on their own. The parents are like, all right, you can go find your own food now. Bye. (laughs) And then the parents kind of go do their own thing. And sometimes they migrate, sometimes they don't. Um, but yeah, I take, I take a ton of photos of them. I just sit out there and on my balcony and just, you know, I'm looking out there right now and there's, there's like two of them hanging out and I can hear a couple others outside of my other window. Um, but I take a lot of photos of them and I have a whole other Instagram that is just for my hummingbird like addiction because it is it is you're right it's an addiction <laughs>
0: but that that ended up taking off in a way that you I couldn't have, I couldn't have imagined and you I'm sure that you certainly didn't sort of ex- expect it became its own its own thing tell me about that
1: yeah it's um I I started posting it like in my own Instagram feed, and then it started getting a little bit more attention. So I was, I just said, let me just have my own Instagram feed strictly for the hummingbird. And now I sell a lot of prints from it. You know, people contact me, you know, um, like I had a couple people want to buy some for their parents for Christmas and they asked me to frame them and, you know, do all that kind of fun stuff. Um, ABC news bought one of my images for like their, their fun, um, what is it called? Fun photo galleries or something like that. Like those, those photo galleries where you see the squirrel, Mm -hmm. you know, behind the guy's camera taking a picture of another squirrel and it's just a funny animal moment. So they bought one of my photos, um, of a hummingbird and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's kind of just become this thing. I've, I've become a bit obsessed with them. I I read a lot about them. I can tell you all kinds of crazy facts about them. (laughs) Um, I'm in the middle of a ceramics class this semester and I'm actually creating sort of an installation piece that is based on hummingbirds that is all ceramics. So yeah, like they, they are, they're definitely part of like the life and family that I live here (laughs) in in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, it did, it just took off. It, It it took, a short amount of time for it to just grow and, and all of a sudden I had a whole bunch of hummingbirds and now when I leave town I have to, you know, pay a friend to come over and feed them for me while I'm gone. But you have a uh, huge following with those as well, you know, in terms yeah. of just on Instagram. It's,
0: it's, I know that there's a, there's a sort of market and interest in virtually anything out there, but I'm sure yeah. that it probably took you off guard to see how many,
1: it did, How many it did. People. I was surprised. I was surprised because right? I have, I want to say like just under a thousand people that follow me just for my hummingbird photos and I don't post them that often just because, you know, I'll sit out there and I'll shoot them a lot and then I'll just dump them into a folder and let it sit for a while. And then when I have free time, I go through there, you know, go through all my old images and just pull out my selects and then work them all up. And then over the course of like a month, I'll just upload, you know, here's a hummingbird photo every day that I've shot over the past two months or something like that. And yeah, there's just the, the community there is really I don't know. They're really fun. They're really engaging. There's, there's a lot of really good photography in wildlife that's happening there. And I don't know, there's, um, even a, uh, tr- a Costa Rica, uh, trip that I found where you can be guided through the rainforest to see like 40 to 50 different types of hummingbirds and photograph them. So that's where I'm saving my pennies right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do, Do you find that having this other creative outlet with respect to your photography is a nice
1: alternative to the kind of work you normally do? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, you know, it's a little bit, it can be a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel, just because it's the same setup all the time. And the birds, I kind of know based on, you know, how the tree is growing in, like where they're going to end up being and where they sit. So I can usually kind of plan around that. But then there are times where it's like, okay, the light's really nice. So, or when, oh, actually when it rains, that's I think is probably the most exciting because they love like just taking a shower and they will sit there and Mm. they will like preen out all all their feathers. And they just make these really crazy sort of like, puffball shapes (laughs) that are super neat to photograph. So when it's raining, I'm always trying to be out there with them. And as far as like when it comes to photography, yeah, it really is. It's almost like, um, I don't know, there's there's no pressure to it. It's all I'm shooting for the joy of shooting and like really trying to make a pretty image, you know, which is depending on, you know, what realm of photography you're working in, you're not always thinking about, I want to make a really pretty image, but with these birds, they're so, they're like flying gems, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, it's, I just want to make pretty images of them and I want to make them as super detailed as possible. And, and, um, you know, actually with, with the money that I make from selling prints for them, they end up paying for themselves. So they go through, uh, about 25 pounds of sugar every month. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they pay for themselves every year. Like they earn their keep. <laughs> 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 uh, they, um, they actually, I rented a, uh, one of those big, uh, like the big sports illustrated photographer lenses, the, the Canon, um, like the 400, the Four, big white one that okay. has like, you have to have like it's a monopod just for that alone. Right, exactly, uh-huh. uh, I rented one of those and that, I literally just sat out here for an entire weekend and did nothing but photograph them with that lens. Cause I'm like, I'm spending a hundred dollars for the rental for the weekend for this lens. I'm shooting as much as possible, and the images that came from it are insane. Like, it made me go, you know what? I need to actually just buy one of these lenses and just call it a day, because the other, the other lenses that I'm shooting with, they do, the, they do the job, but like this lens, it's like right there in their face, and it's at super high speed, which is really great. Um, but generally, I shoot it with just like a 300 with a, um, uh, an extender, like a four times extender on it. Mm-hmm. I can get really close with that, Uh, and then somebody, uh, Roberto from the workshop, he let me borrow uh, his digital Hasselblad back. Oh yeah, Uh, that was an exercise in frustration and timing. Trying to shoot with a Hasselblad and the lenses with that that don't have autofocus, they don't have. It's you can't can't even shoot at that high speed. So it took. uh, I was really happy with the results from it because the quality of image was just incredible. Uh, I think it was like a, um, uh, it's a digital, it's a leaf back, I believe was leaf was the company, but it just made these super high res. I mean, like, I don't think I've shot a single image that had like that high of a megabytes <laughs> to it because it was just such a large file. So it, it gave really great color and depth and detail, but getting them was really, really tough. So I don't know. It's a fun little exercise. Sometimes I'll just go out there with my phone and just stand really still and, and they're used to me being there. So they, it takes them a second. Cause you know, it's just movement. And then they were like, Oh, it's that guy that gives us food. So we're fine with it. Um, I'm a little obsessed. I think, yeah, I, I put up umbrellas when it rains for them because who likes to who likes to eat in the rain? Nobody likes to eat in the rain. And the very first time that I did that, uh, they let me eat out of their they let me feed them out of my hand. Um, oh, wow. yeah, like it was it was kind of a weird moment of like they recognized that I did something. Of course, they're they're birds, so they don't really think that I just fill in the blanks for them in that regard. Like they actually like me. <laughs>
0: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is, I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to oh. discover and explore, and it can be anyone—someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered.
1: Uh, so, who would that one
0: photographer be, and why?
1: Only one. Only one. Only one. Oh, man, that's really tough. Okay, I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna say this one, and, there, and, 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 and it doesn't mean that they outrank anybody else or anything <laughs> like that, because there are so many. Like, there I can think of so many photographers that I just can't get enough of. But I, I I think right now for me it's it's um it's uh Allison, uh Zwaka. And she is um she was a Momenta alum, but she is just this really wonderful person. And the work that she is doing, um I don't know. She's just she's an independent photographer. Um she keeps up with me. So she she'll send me stuff like, hey, here's this edit and I'm you know, and like this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about doing this and and her work is always so so fresh and it's so earnest in its intent, right? Like the work that she is doing and how her approach is, is such a a pure thing. And I love, like, I love that. Like the photography that people are doing that is just at its purest. Like you can see the joy in what she's doing and the community work that she's doing Mm -hmm. and the communities that she's doing the work in. Like it just, it just is imbued all the way through with all of her imagery. And I just, I love Seeing her work, I love seeing her excel. I love seeing like she just. I think she's going to the New York Times um, portfolio review. Uh, okay, like that's huge. Like you get to do that. That is amazing. Like I'm like she's like, can you look at these images? I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course, I want to look at those images. That, that's fantastic. <laughs> like you're whatever I can do to help. Um, I don't know. Just uh, she's she's somebody that that is pushing in the right direction and she's really smart about her approach like she just i think cosmo cosmopolitan just had her at the uh march for our lives in washington and the work from that like her work is so i don't know i just she's just somebody that like i whenever her work shows up in my instagram feed i'm like triple like like you're just killing it you're making me like be
0: better i I gotta check her out but yeah it's definitely definitely worth it all right thank you so much it was such a pleasure to chat with you again Thanks to Matt for making time for us. To find out more about Matt and his work, visit mattrosephotography.net. Also, I'll be teaching a series of workshops where I'll be teaching my personal approach to street photography. I'll be in San Francisco in June at Street Photo SF and New Orleans in October. You'll find links for each of these in the show notes and the candor Frame website. So sign up today. I look forward to meeting some of you very soon. And you can show your support of The Candid Frame by writing a review in the iTunes Store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, these reviews can lead people to listen to us for the very first time. And that makes all the difference. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do it today. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help us to not only meet the cost of production for the show, but allow us to improve our podcast, YouTube channel and website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal. You'll find links for both on the Candid Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Arthur Myerson, Aaron Jean, and William Robbins for their recent contributions. It means a lot. Thank you so much. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other MartinTaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IvarianX. And this is IvarianX, and this is The Candid Frame.